0: Yep. That's I don't true. mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so um
1: well I'll just for my own sake. Uh, yeah. So
0: <laughs> this feels this feels The sick. moment you decide. <laughs> yeah it's like, Ugh, uh, I don't know what yeah. I'm doing.
1: <laughs> I can always edit. <laughs> so this feels terribly awkward, but uh alright, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh we're calling this the history of Christian No, wait, a history of Christian theology. Um yes. and uh I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. I'm your host, Chad Kim. With me this week, as usual, will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. We are beginning to turn into the Constantinian era this week as we study the favored theologian of the emperor, Lactantius. It is important to note historically that with Constantine the Great, Christianity will become a legal religion within the empire of Rome. Lactantius straddles the era of persecution and the era of legalization. This work we are reading from is a summary of the Divine Institutes of Lactantius. He wrote the summary because the original seven-work volume was too long for some readers. I must admit, it would have been too long for me too, so I'm happy he left us the summary. However, this work does serve as a good summary of the kind of theology being done in the era before and during Constantine, and also represents some of the ideas that will become formative for Christian theology in the late ancient period, where we will be moving next week. We will be spending only one week with Lactantius, and next week, we will begin with Eusebius of Caesarea, the first church historian, but also a theologian. After next week, we will be taking a brief three-week hiatus, as I have to finish my semester and I won't have time to be working on the podcast. We should be back in early May, but please check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology for updates. Here's Lactantius's Divine Institutes.
0: I didn't feel he hated philosophy as much as he that he just thought of the philosophers as wrong. So I don't feel like he hated it as a science
2: yeah. per se
0: or as a, as a, as a study, just that they were wrong. And actually he did say they were more right than the poets. Like they were closer to the truth than the poets. Yeah. Um, and like, yeah. It's, it's, you know, thinking about that is kind of funny because I feel like, I feel like at the end of the day, that dichotomy still exists i mean throughout history there's this there's the creative approach to truth and then there's the rational approach to truth mm-hmm. and i feel like we're constantly in tension uh, with each other
1: yeah either of those are great places to start i mean one one way to talk about the poets that maybe i was trying to think if it's different from the way that we conceive of poets now or not i think it might be slightly different be, but he could, because he strongly identifies the poets with mythology um, and strongly identifies them as sort of the, well, ultimately he, well, he sort of says that the demons sort of create mythology in the poets. uh, But nevertheless, the poets are strongly identified uh, with mythology, which I wonder if some of that may be distance a little bit in a sort of modern conception of poetry.
0: Oh, Uh, for sure. I, I think one of the big differences obviously is the poets themselves and the way the culture looked at poetry was that, the, the poets did not, well, like Socrates, he says this in um, uh, in the Apology. The poets do not work from knowledge. They work from inspiration. And to them, that was very distinctly, inspiration is from the gods. Uh, there's a God inspired, like, like the person is speaking prophetically. So, like, I think of the Greek poets and the Hebrew prophets, at least from a cultural standpoint, as indiscernible, at least to the Greeks. I think if if a Greek read Isaiah, he would go, "Oh, this is a, this is a Hebrew poet, and he's just doing what our poets do." I, I don't think the Hebrews would see it as indiscernible, but I think the Greeks would. In their mind, it would just be the same thing. And I, the, I, we clearly have a different view now, especially because in general, in the poetic sphere and world, there's no reference in the modern era to God. Well, not no, but very little. But at the same time. We still speak of ideas of like inspiration and this sense of the idea coming from almost nowhere. It's like it's like I feel like they still say God is inspiring them, but they just won't call him God. It's something that is beyond human capacity and it comes into us, but we can't explain it. I feel like that's still there. Maybe not. Maybe they wouldn't quite come out and say that. But I feel like there's at least kind of a hint of that in the way we talk about art.
1: Yeah, so um, it, it would be, I mean, there's one word in Greek that's theoponoustos, which Hesiod uses um, when he talks about the muses being inspired. Um, theoponoustos is like God-inspired. It's actually, in Latin, it is translated as inspirare, um, when Paul uses the exact same word. So there's only two or three uses of this compound word, of the God-breath um, or the God-inspiration that Hesiod attributes to uh, attributes to the muses, um, and that's how he writes his works and days. One of the uh, one of the ancient um, sort of poets and myth- mythologists. Um, I can't remember if Lactantius actually uses him by name, uh, but others have certainly Clement. Um, is
0: that, but, is that the, so? That's the word Paul uses when he says um, that all scripture all, is God breathed, or is that what First Timothy three or Second Timothy three? I forget which one.
1: Um, I think it's second Timothy three, but I always get the reference wrong. Yeah. But yeah, so I just think, I mean, that, that is a point to, to make, you know I mean that of the similarity there, but yes, inspiration. The other one that Lactantius definitely addresses, uh, he talks a lot about the, like a lot about Roman religion and features of Roman religion that I don't know that are often discussed or that we've often discussed are, Well, in Latin, the geniuses, the genie, um, and and those are uh, you know now we say someone is a genius as in they're really smart. Uh, For Lactantius, the genius was actually what was there; it was a spirit of some kind, eudaimonion or or daimonion in Greek, uh, where we get the word for demon, uh, but that was sort of um, with any person um, that was somewhere somehow part of them as well, or at least could be attached to them in a certain way. So everybody had a genius rather than people were geniuses. Um, So there's an important difference in the way that he uses the word genius. Um, And he also looks at it as, as evil at this point. Um, So we're talking about a guy uh, late third, early fourth century who has already identified
0: the negative aspects of geniuses and and demons. Well, he seems to equivocate on the word demon because So he uses it as an argument because Socrates, well, Plato, in speaking of Socrates, has Socrates frequently make use of the daimon uh, as his inspiration, as the god who speaks to him or through him. Now, to Socrates, the word daimon did not have the meaning that it does to a, a medieval Christian when he's talking about a demon. It's a totally different meaning. And Lacantius actually... Is not super fair in dealing with that because he kind of says, Look, Socrates himself admitted it was a demon that spoke to him. And what what Contius is picturing as a demon is not what yeah. what uh, Socrates is picturing as a demon.
2: Yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> What? <laughs> no. Yeah,
1: that's switching the meaning around a little bit. You can't just come out and do that to, <laughs> or all, um, we've, so we've clearly entered into this discussion. One of the, one way to look at Lactantius is I feel like he's a summary of, uh, how, where we're at to this point in Christian theology. Like mm. he, he talks about a lot of the different things that have come up in different places from the various authors we've read. Doesn't mention virginity. Um, so we didn't do that episode on Methodius. Um, but he is kind of a, a, you know, this is a summary of the divine Institute. So it's a much larger work that, I couldn't imagine actually reading the whole thing after even just reading this summary. I was like, I think I
0: get your point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause it's way larger. I mean, it's, it's a huge work. What the divine institutes is kind of like the first systematic theology of the Christian church. Right. I mean, it's, he has set down and tried to do, I mean, if you were to open an evangelical systematic theology today, I feel like they would follow the exact same floor plan that he does with the divine institutes. They would start off with general revelation, and they would start out with arguments for God's existence. They would start off explaining why everybody else was wrong, which is what he does in the Divine Institutes. And then they'd go into um, basic core Christian doctrines and build on that. He ends with end-time stuff, which is what every systematic theology ends with. It's always the last thing you cover. So it's like we have here the first systematic theology laid out.
1: Yeah, the other – well, so just to get into some of the particulars, Tom actually used the phrase medieval Christians when referring to demons. I think it's appropriate uh, that we use uh, this thought of what did medieval Christians think versus what did these early ancient Christians think uh, because with Lactantius, who was uh, I guess the right-hand – or the number one theologian to Constantine um, who really appreciated the works of Lactantius – the other thing, some of the stuff that he brings out are issues that will come up in all of the medieval theologians that we will read. I mean, they will come up in Augustine and they will come up in Boethius and Cassiodorus and some of these really these later ancient thinkers. We're kind of in the transition period here from early persecuted, sort of scattered Christians. And then after, um, after Constantine converts and there's the Edict of Toleration – um, we'll start to see Christianity really flowering um, and then by you know and then in, in about a hundred two hundred years, um, you could almost argue that we we're transitioning into the medieval period, and so I wanted to pick up on one particular thing that uh, Lactantius addresses that I don't think that we have actually used this phrase, but it is the sumum bonum, uh, the highest good, the chief good um, for to which man is directed. Um. So he goes through the ancient philosophers about this, uh, about what they think the highest good is. But this will be a phrase that is repeated for the next thousand years, um, mm-hmm. as as Christians try to wrestle with how did the philosophers understand the highest good? Where were they close? Where were they off? Um, mm-hmm. And what does? How does Christianity actually? And 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 ultimately, the medieval mind will will lead us to, and even in Lactantius's mind. Um, Christianity leads us to the highest good. I think there'll be different explanations for how, uh, but, uh, but Lactantius really capitalizes on this, this ancient uh, philosophical theme and basically says the philosophers got it wrong.
2: Yeah, which on the face of it, it seems like his highest good is a bit superficial, to be honest. Like, So let's, it, let's go ahead and say what his highest good is. It would be immortality, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah he says immortality, yep. And which I I kind of find, but like only on the face of it, does it seem kind of like, well, what? So we're only doing this so that we can all live forever. Is that the only reason we're doing this? But then when you kind of look at his explanation, I kind of wonder if he should be agreeing with some of these philosophers who say, for example, that happiness is, uh, you know, one of the highest goods because he's basically saying you get to be happy forever like and so how is happiness not also playing in to his his concept of goodness still it still seems like it's built into the concept even though he's not making it fully explicit so I was kind of uh, anyway I was sort of annoyed
0: but yeah which and actually you know Trevor's the, the fact that Trevor brings up happiness um that's what Aristotle said is the highest good that was ultimately and Aristotle approached that, but kind of came to the idea of happiness. And, and maybe if I could couch this in more modern terms for our listeners, when I think of the summum bonum, the, the highest good, I think of it the way we think of as purpose, like the purpose of our existence, the meaning of life, maybe why we're yeah. here. I feel like contextually, that's kind of what they're after. And Aristotle, he kind of came to this conclusion by observation. He asked the question, um, what is the thing that we do for its own sake? Yeah, You know, like we all go to work and have jobs, but we don't have jobs because we want jobs. We have jobs because we want money, but we don't want money just because we want money. We want money so we can buy things, but we don't want to buy things just to buy things. We want them so that we can consume them in some sense. And he says, all of this ultimately leads to happiness. Every single road leads to happiness. And happiness is the one thing that you want for its own sake and for nothing else. And I, I think that's a pretty interesting approach immortality, I don't know if I think it's superficial so much as I think you can ask the question of, well, why immortality? <laughs> like, right. why? You know what I mean? Like, it seems like we become immortal, but then is there nothing else that we might? I mean, is it yeah. that it? There's nothing else for which we are immortal?
2: Yeah, and I
0: guess what I meant by that is... Oh, no, I'm not criticizing you.
2: I'm just saying that... N- no, but I realize I, sh- I should have said, I thought that, um, I think that, like... For example, when we share the gospel nowadays, we don't say, you know, just do this so you won't go to hell or just do this so you live forever. I mean, ideally, obviously, we want to say just God, like God alone. Mm -hmm. He is worthy of just being sought after. You should just want to be with God more than anything. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, God himself is the chief end and I, so I found it weird. I just have to admit that when he goes immortality, I'm like,
1: wait, not just God alone. Yeah. Just yeah. why wasn't God? <laughs> yeah. The- well, and he also says in order to get to immortality, in order to get immortality, we need to be just. So that 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 is the other element for him of the highest good um, that he thinks that uh, I think he ultimately believes that the other philosophers not missed, but but sort of he puts in a higher. Um, a higher goal. Um, he does take the uh, Aristotelian notion of justice. He says giving to each his due. Um, he also mentions equity. Um, mm-hmm. Which, when he mentioned equity, uh, so we're we're I'm looking at uh, chapter 34 here um, in the uh, the epitome, the summary of the Divine Institutes. Um, he talks about uh, the the Aristotelian <laughs> definition, giving each his due, and then he also talks about equity. And I I wonder like you know when we think about being just we do often think about uh, equity doing things equitable uh, but I was wondering if if it you know equal um, is exactly the same way that we thought we think about it like everybody gets equally or everyone is treated equitably um, I think can sometimes be uh, equiv you know sometimes that can be equivocated uh, where we often think that everyone should have the same thing whereas I think when he mentions equity here. Uh, it just means being treated fairly, not necessarily getting the same things.
2: Yeah, I, I always just kind of substituted equitable in some context with just fair. I mean, that's mm-hmm. how I was thinking of it. But
0: Yeah, I've always thought of fairness in that sense. But saying that justice is everybody getting his due is slightly different from making sure that everything is fair per se, right? And And I feel like, these issues are kind of the issues that surround many of the debates today amongst conservatives and, and, and social conservatives and social liberals, right? And typically, debates are cast in terms of of uh, making sure that somebody gets like on like gets what rightfully belongs to them because of the amount of work, uh, kind of that I've worked hard, I've done my bit, I should get what I deserve. Versus this, versus the notion of hey, everybody should have equal opportunity and we need to make sure that we level that playing field so that people have those equal opportunities. So those, those filter into the debates about what constitutes justice, and it's kind of hard to pick through that sometimes, I feel like. Before we continue on the subject, can I really quickly just piggyback off of something you alluded to, Chad, just to make sure that, so this is slight tangent, but Chad made mention of the fact that Lactantius is the Emperor Constantine's kind of favored theologian, And we are reading the anti-Nicene fathers, and technically what that means is we're reading the fathers that precede the Nicene Creed and uh, technically precede Constantine, who was the first Christian emperor, which, guys, our listeners, those of you out there listening to us, uh, I I cannot emphasize enough how radically the the world changes when Constantine converts to Christianity. Everything uh, in terms of background and culture that we've been talking about Undergoes the most extreme paradigm shift. We go from a pagan world where Christians are minority and persecuted to a Christian world where the Christians are ruling and in power. And so for the first time, you can actually begin to think of Christians speaking from a position of power. Now, Lactantius was alive during this, and the divine institutes are written sometime during this transition. Um, the reason he's included in the Anti-Nicene Fathers is because he was alive under the great persecution of Diocletian and Galerius. And he was at the end of his life or towards the end of his life when Constantine comes to power. But he will he will survive through part of Constantine's rule and will actually uh, serve uh, in terms of educating Constantine's household and things of that nature. So it, things, ra- things are radically different now. And I just want to make sure you guys out there listening, understand that, that we're going through a, a major fundamental paradigm shift here at the turn of the third and fourth centuries.
1: Yeah. And just to finish up this thought about justice, to go back to justice, I'm reading his last quote, which we've we've talked about justice on several occasions here. And he definitely has a, uh, a more positive view, if you like, of justice rather than just as punishment. Um, he says, how much more is it befitting that man who is united with man both in the interchange of language and in communion of feeling should spare man and love him for this is justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, So justice is loving man. Um, And so he, he sort of um, without actually using uh, the quote from Jesus on love God and love neighbor. He basically sums up the life of the Christian as loving God, which is wisdom and loving neighbor, which is justice. And that will ultimately achieve that will achieve virtue, which, which will be rewarded Uh, with immortality Um, and this to him is the summary in a way uh, of the christian life
0: and I, i would throw in something important too for all of us and this is something that i don't know if our listeners have noticed i know i haven't brought it up much i don't think any of us have um lactantius is laying out a road for a theology of salvation which in technical terms we call soteriology And it is one which does not make mention, of course, of that hallowed Protestant doctrine of sola fide, meaning that we're saved by faith alone. And in reality, aside from the earliest guys that we've read who I do think paid lip service to that, at least referenced being saved by faith alone, we haven't read anybody who seems to be aware of a distinction between salvation through faith alone as opposed to salvation by works. That, Like, it's just not even referenced. Um, so
1: no, I think it's important. Um, so after he goes through taking down the philosophers, (laughs) um, we get a, you know, more of a, a, maybe of a standard, um, more like what you'd have, you know, again, in this, in the systematic theology, more Christian theology and his view of salvation is exactly what Tom says. Um, well, let's see. So, uh, if we look at chapter, uh, 50, um, we see, him say, since therefore Christ was sent to men as a teacher of virtue for the perfection of his teaching, it was plainly befitting that he should act as well as teach. And I basically highlight that because it's in this chapter that says why God assumed a mortal body and suffered death. So his explanation for salvation is that Jesus teaches us to be virtuous. Now, he does go on to some other explanation later that sort of mentions repentance uh, he has one mention of the Holy Spirit in this whole text, uh, but but other than that, it's very it's it's basically what um, and and later uh, scholastic terms will be called the moral exemplar theory, which basically Jesus the 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 way that we are saved the salvation comes by following the example of Christ. Um, yeah.
2: Literally, literally, he would say God could not have practiced what he taught to us without assuming a body. He did say that. Yeah. yeah. So,
0: yeah. And I had mean, right here a, a quote from chapter 52 uh which just tags on to the man. quote you read there Chad. It's the very beginning. He says, there is therefore but one hope of life for men, one harbor of safety, one refuge of liberty, if laying aside the errors by which they were held, they open the eyes of their mind and recognize God in whom alone is the abode of truth. They despise earthly things and those made from the ground, esteem as nothing philosophy. So actually, yeah, you're right. There's, you know, <laughs> so I guess he is kind of trashing philosophy there. Which is foolishness with God and having undertaken true wisdom, that is religion, they become heirs of immortality. So here he's making a statement about repentance and embracing the true doctrine and despising the things of this world. Yeah, which is
1: just fascinating. I mean, there's just nothing in there about by faith alone, you know, uh, anything about the nature of grace, um, what grace does to
0: transform men. Um, there's not a lot about the cross. He mentions are, it. He talks about Jesus' death and resurrection, but there's not a lot on in terms of – so so please, listeners, don't misunderstand me. He does put it there, and it is a whole chapter devoted to it. But he doesn't say a lot in terms of what it accomplishes, that is, what it actually does in the life of a person or, or what role it plays in, in bringing about salvation.
1: And early on, when we were looking at some of the um, – I think it was when we, uh, we were looking at Sabellianism, or maybe it was Patropatianism, the suffering of the father um, in uh, – uh, actually, it was Hippolytus' Contra Noatum – we were talking about whether or not we would give Noetus a pass. Um, like, so Noetus thinks that maybe you know it's it's kind of modalism. There's just God in sort of different forms, and so mm-hmm. therefore God the Father can suffer on the cross. And we basically said, you know, that is not Trinitarian theology. That's not what the Nicene Creed teaches. Um, nevertheless, it sort of seems almost excusable, both given his time and the really the difficult nature of understanding God. But here's Lactantius, who basically says, "Well, if you know who God is, and then you you work, you know, sort of do some works, you do these things uh, where you despise the world, um, then you can inherit uh, eternal life." So, w- you know, do we give, you know, do we consider Lactantius a heretic because he doesn't have an appropriate uh, soteriology, as we would say, or I mean, he certainly doesn't. Let's say appropriate in this case, meaning he has no sort of like uh, reformed or Lutheran or more Protestant form of soteriology. I feel like there are a lot of people who would read Lactantius and say, I'm not sure he's a Christian.
2: Mm, Yeah. Well, I mean, wouldn't even technically – technically every denomination would kind of disagree with this because even in denominations where works are accented – we can only do them by the grace of god so you still are saved by grace through faith so yeah
0: yeah grace and the cross are central to every christian denomination well yeah every every christian denomination that has been recognized as traditional like the big say. 3 i should say you <laughs> yeah. know the orthodox uh roman catholic and protestant
1: but grace but grace does not feature and Technically, there is no orthodox view of how justification happens or how atonement happens. It's never part of the creeds. Um, it's 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 such a later conversation, um, or maybe it's just so um, obvious that it was never stated outright until much, much later. Uh, but so that doesn't feature in the creeds. So do we consider him unorthodox because he has no or at least has a de- seems to be a deficient um, soteriology insofar as it doesn't mention grace? Well, at the very least, he
2: doesn't accent things which we would expect, but I don't know. It might be a little harsh to say he's non-Orthodox because it's kind of hard to tell.
0: But Yeah, I, I, it actually never occurred to me to think of him as non-Orthodox. I mean, he's, he's so ingrained in the line of traditional theology. It just didn't even occur to me. I, I feel like... It's not so much that he's denying things as much as he's just not, like you said, accenting things. He has a lot on the cross. I just re skimmed through it, chapter uh, 67, or no, sorry, 47. In chapter 47, he has a whole section on the cross. Actually, it's 46 and 47. But all he does in talking about the cross, he, he seems to think it's important. But all he does in talking about it is he explains it as a fulfillment of prophecy. So he takes it as a proof that Christ is who God says he is, and he uses it as the narrative, which then leads to his ultimate teachings on the need for repentance. But he doesn't explain how it connects to God's grace and stuff. And so although I think that is a terrible oversight, I, you know, I, I, I think I would tend to kind of put him in the context of what we've read and, and say, look, he's doing what a lot of the guys we've read have done it makes me feel uncomfortable, but he's not denying anything either. It's not like he comes out and says, look, grace isn't uh, at the base of salvation and the cross isn't essential. It it could be, I mean, you know, there have been many times when I've taught on things or spoken about things and people came up and said, man, you really missed the point. And I look back and say, you're right. I really did. And so it maybe maybe I'm giving him too much a pass by saying it's an oversight. Maybe he speaks much more detailed about this, in the full institutes, right? Um, I mean, this is just the epitome. And the a footnote I had actually said that the epitome we have is incomplete; that we're actually missing part of it.
1: Yeah. Yes, I did see that as well. So, I mean, just to uh, so I, I was I was trying to you know put you guys to the <laughs> I, I don't know like make you guys take a stand on it. But I'll I'll give I'll try to I'll try to spare him some with this quote, uh, which is from that same that same passage that Tom was quoting uh, about the cross. So 47, he says he breathed into them the Holy Spirit and gave them the power of working miracles that they might act for the welfare of men as well by deeds as words. And then at length on the 40th day, he returned to the Father being carried to cloud. cloud. So I bring that up to say, it appears here that the Holy Spirit is sent. This is sort of Pentecost, I guess, after the resurrection. And gave them the power and he says, the power of working miracles, um, but it's also that that they might, for the welfare of men as well as by deeds and by words. So there's something of uh, the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our lives um, such that we can uh, then inherit eternal life. So you know, it may not be as far um, as, as I was making it sound in that other quote, but it, it should be
0: said that at least in the summary, this is the only mention of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, yeah, he even talks about the Godhead and only mentions the Father and the Son. He doesn't he only talks about the tunis. He doesn't even address it as a tri- God as a triune being. Although he does hold what our Trinitarian, the guys we've been reading, Tertullian, Hippolytus, what they hold to regarding the Trinity. He talks about the Father and the Son being of one substance, he actually says uh in regards to those two, but doesn't mention the Holy Spirit at all. I will add, uh, by the way, and the quote you just had, um, you know, just as a point of emphasis, you quoted it and said it, but that, he, that the Holy Spirit gave them the power uh, that they might act for the welfare of men, almost implying that the power of the Holy Spirit was necessary for this, for this transformative work and that they couldn't have done the good deeds without the Holy Spirit. Again, I could be reading them that way because I want to, but I do take that
2: implication. Yeah. Yeah. Seems to read that way. Since we're in the section, do you think the next chapter uh, 48 is kind of some early replacement
1: theology?
2: Yeah, for sure. uh,
1: Well, which we'd already seen in Justin anyway. I mean, Yeah. yeah. I mean, so this is, this is a summary of a lot of things of, of what we've read. And in this case, one of the more negative elements, which was, oh, yeah, Jews are no longer God's chosen people, basically.
2: Yeah, yeah. Disinherited. I thought that was actually some pretty strong language because I was like, hmm, I don't know. I, yeah, only grow, growing up in this modern context, you actually hear the, the opposite message, basically. They're God's people. And then, you know, look at the plan uh, they have. Or God has for them in revelation yet mm-hmm. um, yeah, completely disinherited now it 's just us. <laughs> I thought that was strange, but
0: yeah well, in modern theology, uh, there's a sharp break between people who hold to replacement theology, which is and there are different forms of that I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but more or less, a kind of replacement theology is uh, is anyone which essentially says that the church takes the place of Israel as God's people, that they replace mm-hmm. Israel. But on the opposite side of things, you have dispensational theology, which is vogue now and has been for the most of the 20th century in many evangelical circles. And in dispensational theology, the belief is, is that God has different ways of working in the world at different Times is probably the wrong term. They use the word dispensations. But basically, if you were to take the human timeline, the history of the world, and divide it up into parts, God deals differently in different ways at different times on that timeline. And so on the dispensational view, right now, the church, in a sense, has replaced Israel, but it's only for this dispensation. But the time will come when Israel will once again be God's chosen people, uh, whereas the replacement theologian would say, no, it's done. And in fact, uh, ju- uh Lactantius actually says it's done forever. The Jews are disinherited, and they have no chance of ever becoming God's people again, unless he says they, as an individual, repent and become and accept the gospel. Unless they become Christians, they are done as God's chosen people.
2: Yeah, and it's it's like it's strange because I see from a pure theological point of view. I understand. Well, yeah, I mean, in an obvious way, uh, God's people are the church now. But there's also this, like, I don't know, it's just because Jews have a national and ethnic um, identity that it, like, just, like, I can't help but think, are are you throwing out a group of people like a race of people like cuz that just sounds strange. I
0: don't think they are yeah. not I mean I, so I, I think this could be misread in a in a bad way. Um of course, because yeah. I don't think I, I think if you were to go to Lactantius and say, "Well, what about the Romans?" or the Romans God's people you'd say, "No, the Romans aren't either." Exactly. So he's saying the Jews are not it's not saying that the Jews are excluded as individuals. He's not saying God will never allow a Jew and in. in fact he says specifically that they of course in order to be saved, must repent as well and embrace the gospel. He would just say that the Jew is now under the same imperative that every human is. Uh, A Jew, Roman, Greek, it doesn't matter. God is God of all. So they all have to repent and come to Christ. That They as a nation no longer have this favored status. Not, it's not, nothing changes. It's not like this thing where God won't allow Jews in per se.
2: Yeah. And in which case it's kind of like, to an extent it's kind of always been that way in the sense that Jews who weren't following God were you know like God would just straight up use non-Jewish people even in the old testament when there wasn't someone around in his own people to do to do some certain work or he would use you know a non-Jew to say, uh, save or help his people so oh, yeah well take yeah, for instance
0: yeah. the time in in Elijah's lifetime you have Ahab the king of Israel who is regarded as a wicked King who's regarded as the worst of all the kings. He is clearly portrayed as one who is against God. Um, but then actually, I guess this wouldn't be during the time of Elijah, but his uh, the you know Elisha, his successor, uh, during the time of Elisha who would follow Elijah, you have Naaman the Syrian who is portrayed as somebody who embraces uh, the God of Israel and in a sense kind of is taken into God's people. So even then there was this notion of look, even though you are a Jew, you can still reject the God of the Jews, and even though you're a Gentile, you can embrace the God of the Jews. Yeah. That was still true in the Old Testament. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I'm just gonna turn to something else that I found interesting. I, I guess I uh, ultimately what I've been what I'm realizing now is I was fascinated by his concepts or how he used justice. And one way he talks about justice, he tells this story. He says uh, it may have it may happen. Like so, consider an example where. Uh, Having suffered a shipwreck, you find someone feeble clinging to a plank. Um, you know, so do you do you push that person off in order for you to get, get on the plank, uh, or do you spare them and maybe suffer on your own, or do you find some way to help them? And he says, uh, if you do, if you if you're only going for your own interests, you're being um, unjust. Uh, but he says he says that to to a lot of people, this will look like foolishness. Um, so. if if you're a Christian, justice looks like caring for the person in need even though your own life is in peril. Uh, Then he says to a Greek maybe or to a a non-Christian, this looks like foolishness. Um, And so – and and a little bit further down in uh, 57, he says, uh, but as that malice is intelligent, intelligent and shrewd in preserving its own interest, it is not wisdom but cunning and craftiness. So likewise justice ought not be called foolishness, but innocence uh, because the just man must be wise and the foolish man unjust. So I think I just thought it was interesting, this identification of justice with innocence um, and, you know, and maybe even I would call it mercy. uh, It seems to me that, you know, we would might say that someone who has mercy or pity on someone who's dying. uh, I wouldn't often think to call it justice.
0: I agree. Especially if your definition of justice is what you cited earlier giving somebody their due. Right. Um, uh, you know, it seems to me that mercy is rather, uh, is is recognizing a need that somebody else has and going forward to meet it regardless of the due, so to speak. And so, um, if a person is floating on a plank in the ocean, um does he have a right to that plank i think you could argue yes but do you not as well being a human and <laughs> you know what have you so to me it's not that it's it, i think it, you could say it's unjust for him to push the guy off the plank i think there's a definition of justice where that would be true but it doesn't seem justice to me per se to leave him alone that seems mercy yeah
1: Yeah, I just thought that was uh, sort of fascinating. Um, And I've never heard justice identified with innocence in that way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there were times when I was really struggling to try to pinpoint what he thought justice was. (laughs) I mean, there were were definitely some moments where, I mean, it's obviously so core to his whole teaching, and yet trying to come up with a rigid definition. Uh, For our listeners out there, we've said it before, when you go to – school to study philosophy in an analytic system, you are incredibly concerned to be precise in your definitions. And it is really frustrating reading philosophers and theologians who are imprecise. That is, and that's, that's why like giving somebody their just due to me, that's a fairly precise definition. But then when you start giving examples that really don't have anything to do with that, um, and start flirting around with other, Potential definitions, then it just leads to some confusion, and I get frustrated as a reader. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's to put it nicely. I don't think we're going to read Heidegger, but
2: uh <laughs> he goes, I study more philosophy. Huh? Maybe he should have studied more uh, philosophy. <laughs> Which, yeah, well, and I mean, could he could be like really knowledgeable. Um, he makes a shout out to a pretty obscure, and you're only going to know about this if you were you've studied this for jeopardy for some reason <laughs> but like to the Cyrenaic school yeah and and he seemed to actually know a decent amount about their thoughts so I mean guy was a the
0: guy knew about all his different philosophies. well that's one of the well. that's one of the ironies of all of these anti-philosophers Tertullian too they yeah. say you shouldn't study philosophy but they know mm-hmm. it inside and out backwards and forwards. it's probably because they once thought it was awesome that's probably, so they, they probably studied some, it
2: yeah.
1: and then they just now they crap on yeah. <laughs> well, and one point that he makes about the philosophers to return to something I said earlier, looking forward from theology um, as it de- Well, looking forward in divine wisdom. Um, I mean, uh, we won't actually use the word the proper the way that we think about theology um, in, in contemporary thought as a discipline of its own doesn't really have that sense until really Peter Abelard. Um, in the 12th century, is when theology uh, becomes its own thing separate from philosophy. So a lot of these things are kind of, uh, are definitely overlapping. Nevertheless, one of the problems that Lactantius identifies with ancient philosophy is the varying schools. Um, And this becomes a, pro. uh, this is actually sort of part of the justification for why a lot of people become Christians uh, in the late ancient period, is they see all this disagreement among the philosophers, um, and they see sort of the the inheritors of plato be it middle platonists or neoplatonists as kind of the closest there's enough in plato that looks similar to christianity uh, that they they think that he can that basically he can sort of cover up some of those differences among the schools but ultimately even plato falls short and needs revelation and so it's without it's you know philosophy will kind of get you close but revelation will ultimately sort of and revelation being um, the scripture, uh, will ultimately, tr- uh, sort of even bring together what was recognized in the philosophers and will kind of cover over, um, and maybe harmonize, um, some of what all the philosophers get wrong. Ob- and so sort of the point being philosophy can only get you so far, um, because there are all these disagreements, um, which Lactantius identifies about what is the highest good or, um, I mean, that's kind of the main one,
0: but. And that's a narrative that pops up early in church history. We're going to see it with Augustine, where they kind of start to tell their testimonies about becoming Christians as if they're taking a walk through the philosophers. Like, yeah, once upon a time I studied so-and-so, and and he was awesome, but he could only get me so far. And then I uncovered so-and-so. So So it's it's like a progression towards truth. But then I finally receive the real truth. When I hear the gospel,
2: it's kind of interesting too, because philosophy, I I read an article about this, like, I don't know, a few weeks ago. And it's interesting how philosophy is now its own really specialized academic uh, study because yeah, what we clearly see from these Christians who, you know, were followers of philosophy than uh, becoming Christians is philosophy was obviously a way of life and a way of trying to become a better person at the end of the day, though it was also this, you know, supposedly highly rational exercise, probably because of the emphasis put on logic by people like Aristotle. Um, yeah, it was ultimately a uh, a moral pursuit, though. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not anymore. Yeah. It's completely academic, so...
1: Well, and, uh, you know, with the diversity of opinions, Lactantius identifies there are people who think that knowledge is the only good. And he basically says, but then they live terrible lives. And and that sort of disqualifies them.
2: (laughs) Yeah, he he has this good point about philosophy which says something like, it's obviously not wisdom, which I was like, kind of like, well, yeah, duh. It is obviously not wisdom. He goes, but by the definition of the word, it's just, it's merely the pursuit. So, you know. And they seem to have destroyed, the, you know, uh, knowledge. Like we can't achieve knowledge. They've shown us that. So, you know, what what is this all about? And I was kind of like, well, it's a bit unfair, but um, because then it kind of did contradict things he said later. It's like, no, these guys aren't just trying to pursue knowledge for knowledge's sake. Like, and that isn't just the highest good. So, yeah. anyway. Yep. Anyway, this isn't a philosophy podcast.
0: (laughs) I I would like to throw in really quickly the fact and this might be one of the last times we really see this. um, And I throw it out there. I I am not a guy who's big on eschatology. um, Uh, And for our listeners, again, eschatology is the study of end time stuff. Um, But I do find it interesting watching people wrangle back and forth about eschatology and kind of the story of how people view the end times. We've not read a lot on end times stuff in, in the authors we've encountered. I know Justin Martyr mentioned some stuff. Uh, there was somebody we read recently who talked about it too. Who am I forgetting? Uh, who talked about eschatology. I, I, I don't know. I can't remember. I can't there was somebody else we read recently. But here, Lactantius lays out very plainly, kind of a, like a systematic view of the end of time. And and it's, it's somewhat, it's very much like a contemporary modern evangelical's view, um, a dispensationalist's view, um, with a few exceptions. So one is, he basically tells the narrative of the kingdom of God expanding and growing, people getting saved, but then, of course, of the arriving of... <sighs> He doesn't refer to him in this way, but of what moderns would call the Antichrist, right? A term taken from the uh, from First John, um, or no? Is it Second John? 2 John. Uh, b- both, probably. Both? But it's certainly in First John. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so he doesn't refer to him as Antichrist, but he says there's this guy, and he gets real specific. He says this guy is going to draw people to him. People are going to. Uh, come under his government, under his authority. He will insist that they worship him as God, and he will begin to proclaim himself to be in the place of Christ, which is what antichrist even means. Um, And he then says that followed by that will be the second coming of Christ. When Christ returns, he'll defeat that being. And then Christ will, oh, actually, sorry, before Christ returns, he says, will be this time of dread. He says, it'll be a terrible time in the world. He doesn't specify how long that will be. He just says it will be a time of great uh, temptation and trial. Then Christ will return. And when Christ returns, he will establish a thousand-year kingdom. So again, for our listeners, I referred to that earlier as pre-millennialism. That is, Christ came. He sets up a literal thousand-year reign. He rules for that thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, uh, then, uh, I'm, then Satan is released He says to fight against Jesus, and then there will be one more final battle, and then God will bring about a new heaven and a new earth. That is very much the way modern dispensational evangelical churches view the end of time, with just a couple of exceptions. One, he makes no mention of a rapture, like a rapture of the church that happens before Antichrist or anything like that. There's no acknowledgement of that. Two, he doesn't recognize a a seven year period of tribulation, even though. He recognizes a general tribulation. Um, and I think that's, oh, and three, this is actually the biggest one. He doesn't recognize a, uh, a differentiation between Israel and the church where Israel as a nation comes back to play in, 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 in the story. But other than that, it's very similar. And this is important because we're getting soon to the point where people are going to stop having this view altogether for about 1,700 years. Uh, so it's just going to disappear off the map uh, before it's revived in the late 19th century, early 20th century with some nuance and some changes. It,
2: nuance, it makes but. me wonder who he was reading and or
0: what he yeah. was reading because, I mean, it,
2: it would be obvious to say, oh, he was reading Revelation. But, uh, but you're right. There's like some key components missing that you would have thought he would have mentioned had he been reading Revelation yeah. verbatim. I don't know if it's just he – Thought of those parts of revelation differently, mm. if he you know understood it differently, or if he's getting this from someone who's basically explaining to him eschatology, and it also makes me wonder since this is such an early writing, whether this kind of um, <sighs> lends less credence to the view that which i don't, I don't know if you guys know about this, but that essentially. Revelation was a coded message more than it was to be taken in this literal sense, and to me, I would imagine that if Revelation was only a coded message uh, throughout the church about actually current times, that they kind of would have still known. It would have been a secret kept within the church, and the church would have known about the coded message, and then this guy wouldn't have been talking about a thousand. Mm-hmm. Uh, or a literal thousand-year reign later on,
0: well, if that were the case. that could be. I, I definitely am familiar with people talking about Revelation like it's a code of message. I think there's legitimacy to it. I so think, do I, but, I. I think there is yeah. one thing, though, is that nobody really interprets Revelation literally. A lot of people say they do, but they don't. They might interpret elements literally. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, premillennials interpret the reference to a thousand-year reign of Christ as being literal. Yeah. But as far as I know, I've never heard anybody who referred to the beast of Revelation, of literally. Like, yeah. it's always representing somebody. Usually, for the beast that is in Revelation, I've heard the beast referred to as a human who governs. And I've heard the beast referred to as a nation.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: but I, I've never heard anybody tell the story that the beast is actually a monster that's going to walk <laughs> the earth. And that would be to take it literally. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you might take... so. The debate really has never been, even though people cast it this way, like people do say, I take revelation literally. No, you don't. Nobody does. Um, I, I mean, I love it because I've heard people who say that when referencing the locusts that come up from the pit, they'll refer to them as like, like Tomahawk helicopter or sorry, Apache helicopters or things <laughs> of that nature. I'm like, Nope, that's not literal. That's definitely not literal. Um, it's like at the end of the day, People still pick and choose what they want to interpret as literally. I, I or should not. I should say con like
2: as if there are concrete um uh objects that that are trying to be referred to in Revelation mm. rather than uh merely figurative, mm. which would be there there isn't gonna be any sort of yeah, obviously it may not That's be locusts or fair beast, enough. but I just meant like the distinction I'm trying to make is, yeah, is there going to be like this concrete set of events, however they play out? Mm-hmm. It's obviously not literally beasts of things, yeah. But
0: or is it just merely figured? Mm-hmm. And none of this can well, to even happen if it's in even a if concrete it's, sense. Even but, if it's merely figurative, though, it must have some correlation. So they might not be exact, right? Um, concrete representations necessarily, but uh, I don't. I think everybody believes it's it represents something, something that you could tie. The symbolism down to, I would think. Yeah, when I've encountered different views. Yeah, yeah. well,
1: and uh, so the people that we've talked about uh, so far who mention anything about the end times that are roughly close would be Papius um, and his fragments, which are quoted by Eusebius. So it's possible that Eusebius of Caesarea um, knew of of some sources uh, that, well, like I said, like Papius that uh, that could have been acceptable to Lactantius. The other one is Justin Martyr mentions it a little bit, um, you know. It, so it's possible that he'd have access to that. It appears that he was also born in North Africa, which would, you know, make sense that he would read some Tertullian, who had very distinct in time views as a uh, Montanist. Um, and the Montanists believed in a in a very quick return of Christ, a, v- a very eminent return of Christ, I should say, and a new heaven, a new earth that will sort of come down. Some of them actually believed it to be in uh what 's modern day turkey uh, um, but but that's a a whole separate uh t- trail but you know so some of his it's at least i mean he doesn't mention any of these people. I was just sort of rehearsing the ones that we know of uh that that could have been some kind of influence on him uh, in terms of 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 the millennial reign but it's not as if Christians are unconcerned uh with the end, as it were. Uh, I mean, so Augustine will have this uh, in the City of God. Um, it looks very different. It's not like Lactantius says. So just to, you know, it's, it's not, but, but uh, just to be uh, clear, you know, we will discuss sort of how people look at the end because it shapes uh, the view of history as working towards a goal, which Augustine believes. Uh, but, but rightfully said by Tom, it, it's not, it doesn't look like Lactantius' outline.
2: So, it, was he reading Revelation then, though? Is that someone answer my question? I want to know. What do you mean? Was like, do you think it's you're, you're Chad just mentioned, you know, he was probably inspired by these early writers, but was he also reading Revelation at this point? Was the church in general reading? Oh, yeah. The book of oh, Revelation?
0: Yeah. yeah, Revelation is being used as I mean, as early as anything in the church. I know I've heard stories about like it barely making the cut for canon later. So- Oh, yeah. There is a disagreement as far as the canon, but that's not based on how old it is or how 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 long it had been in use in the church. It's based rather over disagreement about who wrote it mm-hmm. um, because some people were putting forward that the, that the presbyter John who wrote it wasn't John the Apostle. That's one. And then two, of course, is just the fact that it was so hard to understand that people were like, eh. so there was debate, but it wasn't based on the longevity of the book.
1: Actually, I believe the next podcast, uh, depending on how the schedule goes, um, is going to be Eusebius. um, And he is one who actually – I think he's the first person to make mention of the dispute over Revelation. So he Mm -hmm. has a section in book two in his church history about canon, um, and he mentions the, the apocalypse, the revelation of John as having a sort of liminal status uh but uh, so we will reopen the can of worms uh, <laughs> of, of what is scripture what is canon when we get to Eusebius uh like I said I'm pretty sure that that's on the schedule for next week are we doing wait so well his view of the problem of evil I thought about bringing it up uh it'll certainly come I mean it, it's 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 just uh it's just what I mean it's what augustine says but but before augustine
2: it's kind of funny. I was just gonna the thing I thought was interesting about it, even if this is just to you guys, was he everyone associates the evil as a privation view as the ancient um you you'll always hear like philosophers of religion talk about it as the ancient defense uh for the problem of evil like against the original problem of evil, which is God created evil, and that's that's like one of the old versions. But in this one, it's like he's not only responding to the modern version where it's how is God compatible with this evil, which is cool. But he also responds to it in kind of the modern way, which is he had morally sufficient reasons to create this evil. Why? You wouldn't even know what good is if there wasn't evil. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. My thought against it or my criticism of that argument is because so uh, to just enunciate again for our for our audience. Yeah, just what Trevor said. You wouldn't – like you. he actually, I think, takes it a little further. You can't have evil – or sorry, good without evil because there's yeah. no delineation. Like you can't have – in the same way that you – he would say you can't have satisfaction uh, like that is with food if you don't have hunger. Like there's no comprehension. There's no ability yeah. to comprehend it. They can't exist without each other. He is obviously wrong because mm-hmm. someone
2: could, for example – uh, without me experiencing some uh, some injustice, someone could just be just to me and I'd recognize they're doing something good for me. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so I mean, there are ways in which he's obviously wrong, but I like the spirit of it, which is yeah, to sure. give God a morally sufficient reason, which mm-hmm. is the complete like language of today yeah. of uh, yeah. modern philosophers
0: of religion. But I think my, the criticism I was going to bring up against the argument yeah. was – if that is true, if this principle holds true, then the question must come up, is God good? And if God is good, and if goodness can only exist with evil, then there must okay. be something that is as old as goodness, uh, which would necessitate some kind of a dualistic God, where you have an evil God who is co-eternal with the good God, mm-hmm. so that you could have that constant distinction. And, it, and
2: it's also interesting how he did, it's a good point, by the way, but it's also interesting how he doesn't bring up the free free will theodicy, which yeah he really, doesn't, which seems to, from my uh, memory, was kind of one of the earlier problem of evil defenses we saw. So yeah, o-
1: origin among others. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, cool. Thanks for listening, and check back with us next week as we read the first two books of Eusebius of Caesarea's Church History and our last podcast before three week break.